We read the Holy Scriptures together this morning in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, let's read the first 20 verses. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which, when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves? Because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? How is it that ye do not understand, that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. We read God's word that far. Let's consider the teaching of the Catechism this morning in Lord's Day 31. On page 18 in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 31 asks us, What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline, or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers 
and shut against unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers, and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation, so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church, and if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in this Lord's Day, we come to the end of the section of the Heidelberg Catechism that has taught us about the means of grace by which the Holy Spirit quickens and preserves faith in our hearts, the preaching of the gospel and the use of the sacraments. The Catechism concludes this section which has placed the focus on the sacraments by urging the Christian church to perform its duty to exclude from the Lord's Supper the unbelieving and impenitent by means of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We considered that last time in Lord's Day 30. That brings us to the subject of the keys of the kingdom of heaven by which Christ himself opens and shuts the gates of his kingdom by men whom he has appointed to rule in his church. This is a very fitting subject for us to consider this morning, and in God's providence, we were up to this Lord's Day on the occasion of the installation of our brother into the office of elder. And brother, I take the opportunity to assure you and encourage you this morning that today, at this day of your installation, Christ has given to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, together with the other elders of this church, just as he gave those keys to Peter and the other apostles long ago. He gives them now to you, to use with the other elders here in this congregation. Pray that the Lord will richly equip you to use those keys in harmony with Christ's will and for the welfare of this congregation. And beloved congregation, I take the opportunity also to encourage and exhort you to 
obey this elder and the other elders. As our Lord exhorts us in Hebrews 13, to obey those who have the rule over us, to remember them, to pray for them, because they are called to watch over our souls as those who must give account to Christ so that they may not do their work with grief but with joy. Let's consider together then the keys of the kingdom of heaven, noticing first of all the idea of the keys of the kingdom, secondly the function of preaching as a key, and finally the work of discipline as a key. What is meant by the keys of the kingdom of heaven? And before we look at the keys, let's first notice the idea of the kingdom of heaven itself. What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is the spiritual realm of Jesus Christ, whose citizens include all Jews and Gentiles who believe from the heart and confess with the mouth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and who seek to follow Jesus Christ in their lives here on this earth. Just as Peter made that confession in the chapter that we read so long ago, and those disciples also made that confession and followed Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is that spiritual realm made up of all people in all nations who believe and confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the kingdom of heaven comes to manifestation in the midst of the world and throughout the world in churches in which believers seek to manifest the kingdom of God in this world. It comes to manifestation in churches which, to varying degrees of truthfulness and faithfulness, there is the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of Christian discipline. In such churches, where these three things can be found, more or less faithfully executed, there you find a manifestation of the kingdom of God here on earth. Now, the kingdom of heaven is invisible in a certain sense. It is invisible in the sense that no one but God can see into the hearts of the members of the church. The true citizens of the kingdom are the elect of God who come to a true and living knowledge of Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior in their hearts and who long and strive to follow Christ in their lives. But none of us is able to look into the hearts of the other members of the congregation to know whether they have a true and living faith or not. And none of us is able to look into the mind of God to know who in this congregation is elect and whether there might be any who are not elect. In that sense, the kingdom of heaven is invisible. Only God can see it. The citizens of the kingdom are the elect who join themselves together in churches and seek to manifest the kingdom of God. The elect are believers who look for a congregation to call their home where they see evidence of the presence of Christ because true believers are those who believe in Christ, 
who cleave to Christ, who abide in Christ, and Christ is found in the church. So true believers join themselves to those churches where they are convinced Christ is present in the preaching, sacraments, and discipline. We can't see into the hearts of the other members, but what we can see is the gathering of individuals and families who profess with their mouths that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who gather together and organize themselves in congregations in which there are ministers, elders, and deacons. We can see that. We can see that congregation, that gathering of believers with the organization and structure of the local church. And what we can see, too, is the assembly of those professing Christians. We can see with our own eyes this morning the assembly of professing Christians in this place at this time on this Lord's Day to worship God together, to listen to his word. In that sense, the kingdom of heaven is visible. Invisible in certain sense, but it becomes visible as well. But as long as the kingdom of heaven is coming in the midst of the world and throughout the world, there are always tares mixed in with the wheat. Jesus teaches that in the parable of the wheat and the tares, that as he is planting the wheat in the world, the enemy comes and plants tares, and these tares or weeds are growing in the same field with the wheat. That is, there are hypocrites mixed in with the true believers in the world and even in the church world. There are reprobates mixed in with the elect. There are dead branches that are attached to the vine. And Jesus teaches in that parable that he forbids his angels to remove the tares from the field in this present time. They must leave the tares there until the end of time and then he will take them away and burn them. Nevertheless, Christ also teaches that he commands elders to use what he calls the keys of the kingdom, to shut the gates of the kingdom against those who show themselves to be ungodly and impenitent. And so that brings us to the subject of the keys of the kingdom. Let me mention four concepts or aspects to remember in regard to the keys of the kingdom. First of all, the keys of the kingdom can be defined as the power and authority to open and to shut the gates of the kingdom, to let some people in and to keep others out. That's the idea of the keys. That's evident in the idea of a key. What is a key? It is something that you use to open or to shut and to lock. So if someone is given the keys, that means he is given the power and the authority to unlock and to lock. Jesus pictures his kingdom in Matthew 16 as an impregnable fortress. He says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he pictures the church and the kingdom like 
this castle or fortress that he is building up on the rock, this firm foundation of the truth of his gospel. And a fortress has an entrance. It has gates by which people can go in and go out. And gates have keys by which they can be opened and locked. So the one who holds those keys has the power and authority to open and shut the gates of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In the second place, these keys of the kingdom of heaven belong to Jesus himself and to no one else. They are Jesus' keys. And they belong to Jesus because he is God himself who has come down into the world, into human flesh, to suffer and die for our sins in order to establish the kingdom on the rock of his own sacrifice on the cross. It is his kingdom that he builds up on the rock of his truth and his gospel. It is his church. And when Jesus arose from the dead and ascended into heaven, God gave him all power and authority in heaven and on earth, including the power to open and shut his kingdom. He has the power to open the gates of his kingdom to all those elect people for whom he died on the cross. And he has the power to shut the gates of the kingdom against those for whom he did not die on the cross. That is why Jesus later goes on to introduce himself to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3 verse 7 as he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Therefore we have to understand that Christ does not bend to the will of the elders to decide who is in and who is out. But the elders must conform to the will of Christ in that regard. Not Christ to the elders, but the elders to Christ. In the third place, Christ gives his keys to the pastor and elders of the church. And that's what we find in the passage we read. In Matthew 16, verse 19, he says to Peter, I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And later in Matthew 18, verse 18, he says not just to Peter, but to all the apostles, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus teaches in these texts that he gives the keys of the kingdom of heaven not just to Peter. That's the view of the church of Rome, that he gave the keys to Peter and that Peter was the first pope. So that from Peter all the way down to the popes of today, it is the pope who holds the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But that's false. He didn't merely give the keys to Peter, but to all of the apostles. Whatsoever ye shall bind. In the King James Version, the pronoun ye is the plural form of that pronoun. It means you all. He gives the keys not just to one person in the church. Not even to one person in a local church. It's not that the pastor alone has the keys. 
but he gives them to the pastor and the elders so that they form a body or a council of the church and Christ is pleased to use his keys through the elders of the local church. And fourth, we must remember always that Christ opens and shuts the kingdom only when the elders use those keys rightly. Imagine a king giving the keys of his castle to a certain group of gatekeepers who stand there by the gates day and night, and they are in charge of who comes in and who goes out. Now imagine that some enemies of the king come to the gates and the gatekeepers open the doors and let them in. Or imagine that an army who are allies of the king comes to the gates, but the gatekeepers refuse to let them in. You would say about those gatekeepers, they're corrupt. They've been corrupted. Somehow they're not in loyalty to the king. Somehow they don't pay allegiance to their lord. They're not doing the will of their king. They're doing their own will, whatever that might be. They have their own agenda. And you would say that the lord and king will surely punish them for their corruption. And the king is not really functioning through those gatekeepers. He will correct whatever errors they have done. But you might also imagine that the gatekeepers have simply made a mistake of judgment. Not that they have any ill will to the king, they are in allegiance to the king, but there might be times when they think that those people deserve to be in the kingdom, have a place in the kingdom, when really they're secretly enemies who have deceived them. Or it could be that there are citizens who have a right to be in the kingdom, but for some reason the gatekeepers have become confused. Then we can be sure that the gatekeeper will correct all errors and mistakes that have taken place because he only functions and uses the keys when they are used rightly. And elders and pastors make mistakes sometimes. So there's a comfort to us in that. But we must also place the emphasis on this, that when elders use the keys of the kingdom rightly, when they are enforcing the will of Christ himself as it is clearly revealed in the scripture, we must not have any doubts or make any mistake about it. What is bound on earth is bound in heaven, and what is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. Christ works through the elders of the church on earth. Now, what are the specific keys of the kingdom? The Catechism identifies two keys of the kingdom. And it doesn't do that willy-nilly, but it does that on the basis of Scripture, as we see in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and John 20 and other passages of Scripture, that it's true. The preaching of the gospel and Christian discipline are clearly the two keys of the kingdom that Jesus had in mind. Notice Jesus doesn't speak of one key, but keys. He doesn't identify how many, but when we search the scriptures, we find that 
It comes down to these two keys, preaching of the gospel and Christian discipline. Through these two keys, Christ opens and shuts his kingdom. He opens it to believers and shuts it against unbelievers. The first of these keys is the preaching of the gospel. The preaching opens the kingdom to believers and shuts it against unbelievers, but not in the sense that the preaching all by itself grants or withholds membership in a local church. I think we can see that readily. The preaching is not the thing that grants or withholds or revokes membership in a local church. We'll come to that a bit more later. But the preaching nevertheless opens and shuts the gates of the kingdom in a spiritual manner because the preaching binds the stubborn, rebellious heart of the unbelieving and ungodly reprobate. The preaching binds that heart. It hardens that heart so that that person is kept out of the kingdom. But the same preaching softens the heart and loosens the chains of darkness in the hearts of the elect of God and draws them to Christ and into his kingdom. Jesus gave the key of preaching to the ministers of the word and sacraments. As we read in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, when he said to his apostles, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He shall be brought into the kingdom. But he that believeth not shall be damned. He shall be kept out of the kingdom. The preaching is clearly one of the keys of the kingdom. The question of the catechism is, how does the preaching function as a key of the kingdom of heaven? We have to understand that not all preaching functions as a key of the kingdom of heaven. For example, not the preaching of those men or women who intrude into the office of the minister of the word and sacraments without a lawful call. There are people throughout history who have taken upon themselves the office of minister who don't have a right to that office. Some men, some women. God doesn't give them a right to that office, and yet they think that they are called to that office, and they barge into it, and they take hold of that, and they go around preaching, sometimes as itinerant preachers on the hillsides and through the countryside. We don't mean to say that God has no purpose and no use with that preaching. We know that God uses all things and works all things together for good to those who love him. And God may be pleased to use even that preaching of others who really ought not to be in the office of minister. But to put it more positively, God certainly uses the witness of Christian men and Christian women to draw his people to the preaching. But that witness of the ordinary, unordained Christian is not, properly speaking, a key of the kingdom of heaven. The preaching is a key 
when it is done by those who are lawfully ordained into the office. God is pleased to call certain men to devote their whole life to the preaching of the gospel. And he calls them and sends them through the church and ordains them into that office for life to spend their whole life preaching the gospel in the church and outside of the church. And it's that preaching which he uses as a key of the kingdom of heaven. Now notice two ways that the preaching functions as a key. First positively, then negatively. The catechism says that the preaching functions as a key, first of all, when it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever he receives the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all his sins are really forgiven him of God for the sake of Christ's merits. The preaching opens the kingdom of heaven to all and every believer when it declares and testifies the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the preaching declares that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that Christ Jesus came into the world to give his life a ransom for many, to lay down his life on the cross as the ransom price for the sins of many, to redeem them from the curse of the law, to break the chains of Satan in their life, to give them a right to everlasting life, and that Christ Jesus arose from the dead as the first fruits of everlasting life, the first fruits of a great harvest of many, many people throughout all nations of the world. And when the preaching declares and publicly testifies the promise of the gospel that whosoever believes in this Christ will not perish, but will receive the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. That promise of God is declared and publicly testified And when the call of the gospel is declared, repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace and lay hold upon him and him alone as your Lord and Savior, as your only hope in life and death. Believe, believe in Christ and believe in Christ alone for your salvation. When the preaching issues that call of the gospel to come, And then promises to everyone who comes, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will be given everlasting life. Then Christ himself speaks through that preaching. Turning his key in the hearts of his chosen people. Opening their blind eyes. Breaking the shackles of darkness in their hearts. Softening their hearts so that they see with spiritual eyes what they never saw before, the wide-open gates of his kingdom. And as he summons them in the preaching, he calls them to himself. It's as if he is standing in those wide-open gates saying, Come to me, come to me, come to me. And he draws us with the power of his grace and spirit 
into those gates and into his kingdom and bestows on us the riches of the forgiveness of sins and the hope of everlasting life. That's how the preaching functions as a key positively in the hearts and lives of the elect. Preaches the gospel to them, issues the promise to them, calls them to repentance and faith, and draws them into the kingdom. In the second place, and negatively, the preaching functions as a key, according to the catechism, when it also declares and testifies to all who do not sincerely repent that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation as long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel God will judge them on both sides of the grave. The preacher must also warn all who are in his audience, whether an established church or on a mission field. The preacher must warn everyone who hears him that anyone sitting in front of him who does not sincerely repent, anyone who does not from the heart hate his sins and desire to be free from his sins and strive against his sins and confess his sins and doesn't cover his sins, but says, O God, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sins are before thee. I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me and blot out my iniquities. Those who do not sincerely repent, those who are stubborn and hardened in their sins, who refuse to listen to admonition, who refuse to hear the call to repentance, the preacher must warn them, you stand exposed to the wrath and judgment of God. You stand in danger of falling into the hands of the living God, who the scripture says is a consuming fire to those who do not repent and flee to Christ. Those who do not see their sins and their need. Those who do not consider themselves blind and broken and deaf and poor and miserable and wretched. Those who do not find all their righteousness in Christ. You stand exposed to the wrath and judgment of God. Repent and flee to Jesus. In that way, too, the preaching is a key of the kingdom because Jesus also speaks through those warnings of the gospel and he turns the key of his kingdom in the hearts of the reprobate so that they harden themselves even more and they become even more stubborn and obstinate. And probably those warnings of the preaching eventually will drive them out of the church too. They don't want to hear it. They won't hear it. But those warnings also function as a key in the lives and hearts of the elect. Because those same fiery warnings of wrath and coming judgment serve to turn the key and open the kingdom in the hearts of the elect. When God's children hear those warnings, they aren't afraid. 
but they're humbled and they're driven to Christ again. And embracing Christ, they are thankful for deliverance from that fiery judgment. And so we preachers confess with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. We, we preachers, are unto God a savor, a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are a savor of death unto death and to the other the savor of life unto life. And since we preachers wish we could only be a savor of life unto life, we wish that all who would hear our preaching would be converted and saved. Yet we know that some will be hardened. We add, and who is sufficient for these things? The preaching of the gospel is the first key of the kingdom. But there is more than one key. There are keys. And the other key of the kingdom, according to the catechism and scripture, is Christian discipline. Christian discipline also opens and shuts the kingdom to believers and unbelievers when it is exercised in harmony with the will of Christ revealed in the scriptures. If you have rogue elders who are using their power and authority in unlawful and unbiblical ways, that is a corruption of the key, and Jesus is no longer using it. But when you have elders who are faithfully following the will of Christ in the scriptures to the best of their ability, Christ opens and shuts the kingdom through their discipline. And it is in this sense that also the membership in the local church is granted and withheld, given and revoked. It is through the discipline work of the elders. Christ gives this key to the elders as well as to the pastor. In Matthew 18, verse 18, when he said to all of the apostles, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The question of the Catechism is how does discipline work as a key? Notice, first of all, that the work of discipline begins with you, it begins with the ordinary member of the church whether an office bearer or not. And again, properly speaking, the work of discipline that begins with the non-ordained member of the church is not yet a key of the kingdom, but it eventually may lead to that discipline which is a key of the kingdom. Nevertheless, we have to be reminded again and again and again that discipline begins with each one of us. In Matthew 18, Jesus teaches the proper way of conducting discipline. And the Catechism reflects that in Lord's Day 31. Jesus says, when your brother sins against you, you go to him first in private and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The Catechism speaks 
of those who, under the name of Christians, maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith. And it speaks of them being brotherly admonished. It's talking about the fact that when a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ is maintaining false heretical doctrines and teaching them, promoting them, or when someone is maintaining wicked, ungodly, immoral practices that are not consistent with the name of a Christian, then the duty first falls upon you, not the elders, but you. You who are aware of that sin, if it is a serious sin, and you become aware of it, the duty first falls on each one of us to go to that brother in private and tell him his fault. That is not something we are to do in a proud and haughty manner. We need not think of that as us puffing ourselves up as if we are holier than them and going to them to tell them all of their sins. But we are to go to them with humility. We are to go to them as those who acknowledge first our own sins and first pull the beam out of our own eyes and who also acknowledge that to them who make known to them, I'm not coming to you because I think I'm holier or better than you. And then it is to confront them with their sinful behavior with Scripture. We're not to come with our own opinions. I saw this, I heard that. Yes, I saw this or heard that. But then we are to come with our Bibles, open our Bibles, and show them this is what you're doing, contrary to the will of God. Show them their fault and call them to repentance. That first act of discipline by the ordinary Christian is to be done in private unless privacy is the very thing that the sinner is using to continue in his sin, such as those who carry on abusive behaviors in the darkness of the privacy that they're trying to maintain control over their victim by maintaining the privacy and the secrecy and the darkness. Or when there are those who are trying to bring about treasonous behavior, mutiny and schism and discord in the church or the state, And they're trying to carry that on in secret, in darkness. And the privacy is what they're trying to maintain to continue in their sin. Then our duty is to drag it out of the darkness into the light. But in all other cases, we are to do our utmost to maintain privacy. We are to keep things secret and confidential for the sake of the name and reputation of the brother and of others until it must be made public. First, we are to go to the brother alone. Then with two or three witnesses, if he won't hear us, and if he still will not hear us, after we have often brotherly admonished him, not just once, but often, again and again and again, but he is stubborn. He is evidently refusing to budge. Only then do we tell it to the church. 
And that's when discipline as a key of the kingdom properly begins. When the consistory becomes aware of the situation, of the impenitent, immoral behavior of a member in the church, that's when they begin to exercise discipline as a key of the kingdom of heaven. But they don't do anything essentially different than what you do. The elders simply continue the work that you have begun. They go to the brother with a committee of two. They open their Bibles. They show humility and meekness. They make sure to demonstrate they don't think that they're holier than the brother, but they show him from Scripture, this is your fault, brother. You must repent. And that continues as well, so that he is often brotherly admonished by the consistory over a long period of time. And only if the brother refuses to listen or the sister refuses to acknowledge their sin, then the consistory must make the decision, as the catechism points out, to bar them from the Lord's Supper, to suspend the privileges of membership in the church. And if they refuse, even after that, then the extreme remedy is excommunication. And the catechism teaches us that excommunication is to exclude that person from the Christian church, from membership in the church, from the rights and privileges of the church, so that although the excommunicated person may still come and listen to the preaching on Sunday, if he chooses, he is barred from all rights of membership in the church. And Jesus says we must consider him a heathen and a publican. Christ himself turns the key of discipline through that work of, di of elders when properly executed. He turns the key to the impenitent person and casts them out of his kingdom. What is bound on earth is bound in heaven. But Christ may also be pleased, even through excommunication, to soften the heart of the impenitent, to humble him, and to bring him back and to be reconciled with the church. And that, beloved, is and must always be the heartfelt desire and goal of all the elders of the church, to bring the sinner to repentance, knowing that there's more joy in heaven among the angels of God over a single sinner who repents than over 99 just people who think they need no repentance. Be assured, beloved, that that is the desire and goal of your elders. So on this occasion of the installation of our brother into the office of elder, let's take all these things to heart. Let's understand these things. And let us, who are the pastor and elders of this church, strive to understand these things. This is our work. We may not give it a lick and a promise. We may not hope for the best. We must study the scriptures. We must study what is our task as elders so that we may do it faithfully and well. And let us, who are members of the congregation, honor 
the men whom Christ has placed over us when they rule well and count them worthy of double honor. May Christ, who is the only head of this church and the universal church, receive all the glory. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we thank thee for the keys of the kingdom that thou hast placed here in this congregation too. We thank thee, Lord, that thou hast given us entrance into thy everlasting kingdom. And may we rejoice as the citizens of the kingdom of heaven striving to live lives of obedience.